Is the assassination of a former Pakistani prime minister a major setback in the war against Islamo-fascism? We'll discuss the need to stabilize this Muslim nuclear nation. And there are some revealing numbers out on the doctrines of grace. Does Calvinism stifle evangelism? We'll ask a theologian and take your calls. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. The United States strongly condemns this cowardly act by murderous extremists who are trying to undermine Pakistan's democracy. That's President Bush expressing America's concern over the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. She was Pakistan's most popular politician, about to be elected prime minister to share power with the current president in about 12 days. That was not to be. Uh, She was murdered by a suicide attacker uh, in Pakistan, and we will be discussing this today with Lisa Curtis from the Heritage Foundation. She'll join me in just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, it was sort of a shock to the sensibilities after uh, a nice Christmas, and I'm sure for many of those in power in the United States having now to deal with this happening in uh the nation that is one of our allies uh, in the war and terror. The United States really engineered the return of Benazir Bhutto to Pakistan after an eight-year exile in October. Of course, she experienced an attack then, uh, but she was saved, and uh, she was not hurt in that attack. She knew that there was danger. Speaking from his ranch in Texas again, President Bush saying Benazir Bhutto was courageous in her quest to bring democracy to Pakistan. Mrs. Bhutto served her nation twice as prime minister. And she knew that her return to Pakistan earlier this year put her life at risk. Yet she refused to allow assassins to dictate the course of her country. One of her quotes that's sort of haunting now, she said, I did not choose this life. She was the daughter of another former prime minister, and she was an advocate for democracy in the nation. And many people saw her as a chance for stability in Pakistan. She insisted that Pervez Musharraf stepped down from his leadership of the military in order to share power with her. Uh, But that is not going to happen. Now, he did step down, and he is president. He was elected in October, but that power sharing will not take place. Well, here's the story. Correspondent Roger Kaplinsky reports on Budo's death. He says it's thrown the campaign for the parliamentary elections to take place, was to take place in 12 days, into chaos. The timing of the assassination of Benazir Bhutto could not have come at a more intense time in Pakistan's political cycle. The country has just come out of weeks of a state-imposed state of emergency and was two weeks away from a general election. 
With me to discuss this is Lisa Curtis. She is Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. It sort of is a shock if something like this happens uh, when we're all relaxing. You can't relax for long. It's sort of a reminder that there's evil in the world, isn't it? Oh, this is just absolutely devastating for the Pakistani people, uh, for the future of Pakistan, particularly the future of democracy in that country. Uh, Benazir Bhutto really, you know, symbolized uh, everything that is anathema to the extremists. She was, uh, well, number one, she was a female leader. She was moderate in her, her politics and supported um, Pakistan moving on a, a path towards modernization, engagement with the world. Uh, this was her vision uh, for Pakistan, and certainly the the extremists uh, that that was a threat to them, and they uh, unfortunately were successful um, in in eliminating her. She had been the target of Al Qaeda for a decade now, uh, and so certainly you know I think we can say that uh, you know if it's not Al Qaeda leaders themselves, it's certainly people who have the same goals and objectives as Al Qaeda, and certainly are affiliated. Uh, with these extremists. These are religious extremists, uh, we believe, that perpetrated this. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just mention that later in the program, we are going to go a little theological here on the program and talk about Calvinism and sort of a debate within some denominations, particularly the Southern Baptist Convention, about Calvinism. Is this a good thing that Calvinism is rising or a bad thing? We'll take your calls on that. That will be later in the program. Denny Burke will join me. But right now, Lisa Curtis with the Heritage Foundation is with me. And Lisa, you mentioned Al-Qaeda. Are you fairly certain that it was an Al-Qaeda perpetrator? Well, I think, you know, this is certainly my analysis, and I know um, others are are also coming uh, to this conclusion. And I think if you just base it on what's been happening over the last several months, uh, of course, Benazir Bhutto returned on October 18th, and there was a major attack on her motorcade then. Uh, 150 people were killed in that incident. And just weeks before she came back to Pakistan, an extremist leader in, located in the tribal areas of Pakistan, one who was uh, very much affiliated with the Taliban, uh, said he was sending his suicide bombers out to, out to get her. Uh, so clearly... She was the target of, of these extremists, um, you know, who have developed a safe haven, basically, in the tribal areas of Pakistan, who have been uh, gaining in other settled areas of northwest Pakistan, most recently in the Swat Valley region of Pakistan. You had Taliban-affiliated extremists um, taking over, using the threat of violence to intimidate the population, much the same way the Taliban did in Afghanistan in the mid-'90s. So they've been making gains. The Pakistan military has been directly engaged in battles. Um, so it, it wasn't just Benazir Bhutto who these extremists are targeting. They're, they're actually targeting stability in Pakistan. They're, they're attacking the Pakistani state. Uh, and Musharraf himself has been the victim uh, so do you think this is a of, of plots to to assassinate him and attempts to assassinate him? Is this type of thing happening because Pakistan seemed to be on the verge of increased stability with this power sharing arrangement that was about to happen? Well, I think you you should look really at what's happening in terms of the Pakistan military's fight against the extremists, uh, you know, in in along the borders with Afghanistan and in these tribal areas, uh, and also the, the Pakistan military operation 
against extremists in the Red Mosque. Uh, you had a standoff at, at a mosque in the heart of Islamabad, uh, the capital of the country, uh, just this past summer. And the standoff lasted for several months, and finally the, the Pakistan military uh, took an operation in which uh, probably close to 100 people were killed. So, you know, these attacks uh, are retaliation for that, uh, but they're also aimed at taking advantage of the political uncertainty in the country. Um, there was uh, protest by lawyers over the summer mm -hmm. uh, because of President Musharraf's uh, attempt to dismiss the country's uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. So I think you, you have uh, retaliation and you also have an attempt to take advantage of political uncertainty in the country and, and just a basic desire to, to create chaos in the country is, is what we're seeing. Lisa, a lot of people are wondering, well, how does this affect me? How does this affect national security? This is a nuclear-armed nation. There are 165 million people there. It's a Muslim country. Of course, their stable government is in our best interest, and we were trying to help that happen. So what now? Well, like you said, Pakistan is literally at the center of the ideological battle against global extremism. We, we talk a lot about uh, the engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan where our, our military is fighting. But I think <clears throat> what we see in Pakistan is that really you, you see the ideological battle playing out. And uh, we were moving toward an election in Pakistan. I think a, a credible election would have been a major blow to the extremist agenda for Pakistan. And so certainly they view this assassination as, as a step uh, toward their goals. So I think it's really important that um, President Musharraf in particular try to draw the country together, try to work with the political parties, the PPP, uh, the Pakistan People's Party, the, the Nawaz Sharif's party as well. There's a lot of uh, bad blood between Musharraf and Nawaz Sharif, but I think that the time has come for uh, President Musharraf to try to build bridges with uh, these political leaders and with, with anybody who is willing to take a stand against the extremists. It's really only through that kind of unity that uh, Pakistan will be able to, to combat uh, this problem. So, so I'm hopeful that you know our government will be encouraging Musharraf to, to move in this direction to get back to an election process but of course it's going to take time and I wouldn't Will this election happen? Are postponed. That they'll be postponed these elections that were scheduled for 12 days from now? I, I think it's likely they will be postponed. The PPP is obviously in disarray. It's going to take time to the find The PPP is? The, the Pakistan People's Party, Benazir Bhutto's party. So they're in disarray. What if they were to find another candidate? Is there anybody in the wings that they could choose to still share uh, power with Musharraf? Well, it's, it's going to take time, I think, because there's no clear uh, person to, to fill her shoes. I mean, her party was, was uh, built around the Budo family. Her father established the party, uh, and he was prime minister back in the, the 1970s, and, of course, she was prime minister twice. So there is no clear uh, person to take over, but certainly there, there are uh, several leaders who would be capable of doing this, but, but I think it, it may take some time, and the party uh, may be uh, in disarray for, for a period of time. And it, it seems um, 
unlikely that in the next 12 days uh, this, this election could, could come together. And, of course, Nawaz Sharif's party has already said it will not participate. And that's, that's a major party declaring that it will not participate. So now, is Sharif's party more of an Islamist party? Uh, really, the, the, the Pakistan Muslim League is uh, it's a mainstream party. It is seen as slightly closer to the religious parties than Benazir Bhutto's party. But it should be noted that uh, Musharraf's party, the party that he formed, the PMLQ, is actually a breakaway from Nawaz Sharif's party. So the same people that participated in Nawaz Sharif's government in the 1990s are now part of Musharraf's party. So it's it's not exactly that clear-cut. And, and I would just note that uh, Nawaz Sharif is still a, a mainstream leader and, and uh, commanding a lot of support. And his party is still, you know, a secular, um, I would say, center-right uh, political party that it, that is still very much part of that uh that political process there, and and so uh, his views, you know, need to be taken into account, and and uh, and he is perhaps somebody that uh, could help in building this political census, uh, consensus. Consensus. He still have support within the Pakistan military in that regard. All right, one more short uh, question because we're coming up on a break, Lisa. I thank you so much for being with me, Lisa Curtis from the Heritage Foundation has been my guest, and that is uh, democracy versus security because Musharraf declared a state of emergency sort of an emergency government, and we were semi-critical of that, yet we sort of stayed with him because we knew he had reasons, and they were security reasons. So what now? I mean, do we have to help push this country toward democracy, or do we have to help them just get control of the security situation there, or is a combination possible? Well, I think it's a combination, and I think they're related. Um, certainly there, there is a serious threat to Pakistan security, and, and as I said, the military is engaged in fighting extremists, particularly in the northwest part of the country. Um, but it, it's only through uh, a credible election that you're going to uh, bring forth a civilian government that will be able to rally the population behind uh, the military in its fight against extremism. Right now, uh, since Musharraf's credibility has, has declined in the country, um, there's not a lot of popular support for fighting the extremists. And so I think, you know, you, you need that election to sort of galvanize the public yeah. and to create a mandate uh, for fighting extremists and for, you know, Pakistanis to realize that the fight against terrorism is their fight. It's, it's not a fight um, that just benefits uh, the U.S. Uh, clearly, uh, Pakistan itself is a victim of terrorism, and, and we saw that, unfortunately, today. We sure did. Lisa Curtis, Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining me. Next up, we're going to talk about how this affects the presidential equation. Does it change your choice for a candidate? If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. 
Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. We urge them to honor Benazir Bhutto's memory by continuing with the democratic process for which she so bravely gave her life. President Bush speaking from his ranch in Crawford, Texas, and uh, he's basically saying that the United States stands with the people of Pakistan in their struggle against the forces of terror and extremism, those who committed uh, this murder of uh, future and former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan. And uh, this is going to have to be dealt with in many ways. The United States will have to make some decisions as will the Pakistani people, those who want peace there, those who want democracy. And uh, we are going to continue to discuss this. In fact, I want to open up the phones to uh, you, the listener, to say, you know, you're reminded that there's evil in the world, that we're still battling a war against Islamofascism, against jihad. And, uh, of course, the presidential race is uh, coming back into full swing this week with very, very short break, because one week from today, the Iowa caucuses start. Does this make a difference when you begin to think about candidates? Does this change your mind at all with regard to who you might support when you remember that uh, this is such a dangerous world and we're even looking at a Muslim country that has a well-developed nuclear program? The number is 800-881-9270. So we are taking your calls. Also, a little bit later in the program, we're going to talk about Calvinism, with Dr. Denny Burke of the Criswell College, and that ought to be a very interesting discussion. Well, let's go back uh, to the news. Ambassador Wendy Sherman says that Pakistan, with its nuclear technology, is actually becoming, as we're reminded, a very unstable place. We believe that uh, the nuclear weapons are safe today. Uh, There is no telling what might happen in the future, so it is a very dangerous situation. Uh, Now let's go and talk about sort of the uh, situation with regard to Christians, Pakistani Christians there, because we've got a friend, KCBI has a very good friend, Gospel for Asia, and uh, K.P. Yohanan, who is president of Gospel for Asia and founder of that organization, said that Bhutto was a champion for the minority Hindus and also the Christians in Pakistan. You can see the trend of this country becoming uh, extremist, like... um you know, radical Islamic, um, 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 you know, kind of approach will mean greater persecution and um, uh, opposition. Uh, churches, you know, and Christians uh, at large would be number one target for um, these people. So he's asking for prayer for these people. We really ought to be praying for the Christians in Pakistan. Let's go to the phones. We are taking your calls, 800-881-9270. And Mark is calling in from Fort Worth. Hi, Mark. Thanks for calling. Hello. How are you doing? Fine. How does this affect your thoughts on presidential candidates, or does it? Uh, it affects it a lot, considering the fact uh, a lot of the candidates that I see now look to seem to be a lot of puppets. There's a, other people behind the scene that want these people 
to be at play so they can get their views and ideologies going in, in the United States of America, especially uh, I like Barack Obama, but if you look back, he has a lot of atheist and Muslim background heritage. And then you look at Hillary Clinton, and she has her husband behind the scenes. So I, I really, it's really a scary situation for us in the United States because you don't really know where we're going. Uh, and right now, um, we have a lot of things going on that uh, not too long ago here, we had uh, a plane wreck, a private plane wreck with uh, two uh, Middle Eastern descent teenagers or middle-aged students who were learning how to plot commercial planes, wrecked their plane accidentally on the field. But no one's like, uh, hey, you know, that's not weird. Why are they in the United States trying well, to That happened recently? That happened recently in Texas? Yes. Okay, I didn't know about that. Okay, before I let you go, Mark, uh, does this uh, give you uh, any clarity on who you would be behind for president? Um, yes, it does. Who? Um, I got to keep testifying. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. I, I think I probably would still be going towards Barack Obama because he's the only one that I've seen that actually has a, this is my standpoint. No one else is like has a standpoint. Okay. Well, let's uh, go to one of the Republican candidates. He spoke out today, Fred Thompson, commenting on Bhutto's assassination. It's an important uh, part of the world to us. Obviously, there is uh, a personal tragedy. Uh, There's a national security interest as far as we are concerned. There's a stability question as far as Pakistan is concerned. Uh, It's a very touchy uh, situation. Uh, I said earlier this morning that it looked to me like without question that it was an al-Qaeda a backed operation. I noticed uh, in the last uh, little while they've uh, taken credit for it now. All right. Uh, is this man the one you want leading the country when things like this happen? Does he sound presidential? Does he sound like uh, he would know what to do in a situation like this? That's sort of what we have to think about. And we played Pre- uh, Fred Thompson first. We'll play some other candidates, but we want you to weigh in, 800 9270 just sort of talk about this. I mean, it did make me think that uh, these candidates that are asking to be our leader have to sort of step up with their foreign policy credentials and make us trust them. And this sort of reminds us of that fact. Some already have such credentials. Now, here's one who has a very strong opinion uh, about why these things happen. It's Ron Paul. He kind of says it's sort of like our fault. We've been supporting the um, Musharraf government, and he's a military dictator who ever threw an elected government, and we just gave him $10 billion over the last seven years. He's supported by 8% of the people, and, and that does annoy some people. And there's so many factions over there. There's Bhutto faction, Musharraf faction, and it just gives incentives for people to resort to violence, and I'm opposed to that. The fact that we gave money to the Musharraf government uh cause this? Um, I'm not so sure about that. That's what Ron Paul thinks, and I'm not sure what he would do in a situation like this if he were president. It doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence to hear what he said, though. Bob is in Terrell. Bob, thanks for calling. Yes, Penner, the one that sounded most presidential today to me was John McCain, because he was sounding most uh, familiar with the uh, area, and he sounded uh, to me that he knew what to do with the uh, situation. And when Hillary Clinton says she has uh, the uh, ability to uh, take it, to make, you know, to uh, has the ability, the, 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 I mean, the, uh, knows what to do with the situation, we need to realize Bill Clinton was in the White House with the USS Coe's bombed, right. or what did he do? He didn't do That's anything. It. Hey, Bob, thank you. Now, before I play what John McCain said, let's go to Johnny very quickly in San Angelo. Johnny, thank you so much for calling. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your program. You know, I, I kept I saw the video today on on TV on on the uh, the assassination or the killing of of uh, the lady, and it reminded me of our nine one one. It seems like they're they're having nine one ones every day down there in the Middle East. Yeah. So I, as far as a candidate goes, I, I'm looking for a candidate that is that, that wants to bring change to this country because I think we are as Americans. I'm Mexican American, but I, I'm tired of living under the assumption that we need to live in this almost like a fear fear factor type of atmosphere, you know. And, and I think it's getting old. And yeah, I think we couldn't even relax at Christmas. Do you want to tell us who, uh, what candidate you are supporting at this point, Johnny? I, I'm still an, uh, one of the undecided yeah. ones, but I am, I am, I'm leaning towards a candidate. I won't mention their name, but a uh, candidate uh, that I feel can bring change. Okay, great. Uh, We need to get this McCain bite in before the end of the segment. But, Johnny, uh, thank you so much for calling, listening on KCRN in San Angelo. Let's go now and hear what John McCain had to say. I think we all uh, can appreciate why this is so important to America. Uh, Pakistan is our important ally in our war against the Taliban in uh, Afghanistan. I think you know that uh, that Pakistan is a nuclear-armed state that uh, that there has been an area of Pakistan which I have been to called Waziristan, which is now a safe haven for some of the Taliban. I think you also know that there has been a lot of domestic upheaval going on uh, in the country, and apparently it was proceeding to a situation where Musharraf, who had stepped down as the leader of the military and was running for president, was very likely going to succeed there, and Benazir Bhutto was going to probably be the prime minister. An uneasy relationship between Benazir Bhutto and Musharraf, and, a, um, and probably would have been a difficult situation, but the democratic process would have moved forward. Uh, her opponent, uh, an individual named Sharif, uh, in my view, uh, is a, probably a person that has a history of in in. Pakistan that not, at least in my personal opinion, the most admirable. I don't know all the circumstances surrounding her death, and it's not really important right now, except that it's a great tragedy. Um, And of course, whenever something like this happens, you figure out who are the winners and losers. Right now, there is significant unrest in Pakistan as we speak, and there are people that are blaming Musharraf for it. Uh, That's why I say, who are the winners and losers? It seems to me that the winners are the radical Islamic extremists. Benazir Bhutto had dedicated herself and had said on several occasions that she would fight a battle against jihadist and radical Islamic extremists. And she promised the people of Pakistan that. Well, obviously, when something like this happens, who is it that gains? And that is the elements of unrest, disorder, and revolution. That's John McCain's analysis, and uh, of course our caller Johnny in San Angelo said that it sounded like a 9-11 happening uh, every day or every other day over there in the Middle East. Well, let's go to the 9-11 guy, Rudy Giuliani, and see what he had to say about Bhutto's It uh, leads us to the conclusion that we have to remain on offense against uh, terrorism, and we have to work with uh, the people of Pakistan to make certain that they preserve a democracy, they preserve a rule of law. They move even further in that direction. We can't let this be a step back. We have to let it 
become a step forward toward uh, stability, democracy, rule of law, and then uh, something, uh, something positive can be taken out of something that is really tragic. We will continue to discuss this situation as it plays out. And, of course, the U.S. Uh, attempting to be a strong ally to Pakistan at this time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next up we are going to talk about Calvinism. Are you a five-point Calvinist? Is Calvinism good for the Southern Baptist Convention? Is it a bad thing? We're going to talk about it with Denny Burke right after this. listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back to Jerry Johnson Live. I'm Penna Dexter. I'm so glad that you've joined me this evening. Dr. Johnson will be back next week, and I'm sure you'll uh, enjoy having him back at the microphone. And I'm sort of surprised he's trusting me to uh, deal with this topic today. But uh, we will be dealing with the issue of Calvinism. Now, uh, to some people, this is a boogeyman. And uh, basically, doing some damage in the churches, especially the Southern Baptist Convention. To others, uh, they welcomed the rise of Calvinism. And there was a conference held recently at Ridgecrest uh, Church in North Carolina, co-sponsored by Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and also Founders Ministries. And at that conference, a study was presented that was done by Lifeway and the North American Mission Board, which says that nearly 30% of recent seminary graduates in Southern Baptist seminaries now serving as church pastors identify themselves as Calvinist. You compare this with the fact that over the SBC at large, largest denomination, Protestant denomination in the country, only 10% of pastors say they are Calvinists. Well, let's talk about what Calvinism is and uh, why it's become a point of discussion in the Southern Baptist Convention. Is this a good thing? Or is it a bad thing? With me to talk about this is Denny Burke, and he is professor uh, at, here at the Criswell College. He is uh, a frequent contributor here on Jerry Johnson Live. And Denny, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here, Penna. All right, Denny, this is a big topic. And, you know, it's funny to me, in a sense, that it's become such a, uh, a divisive issue, in a sense, because wasn't Calvinism a big part of the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention? Yeah, you, from the very start, the, you've had Calvinist and Calvinistic and non-Calvinistic Southern Baptists. Uh, the first, uh, I guess, the earliest uh, statement of faith drawn up by Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists, was the Abstract of Principles, which is the doctrinal basis of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, which itself is the oldest Southern Baptist seminary, and it's a Calvinistic. Um, doctrinal basis. Now, it's not the five points, but it's it definitely tilts towards uh, a more Calvinistic statement of faith. So you've had a, a Calvinism as a part of the S- SBC from the beginning, and uh, any Baptist historian would tell you you've got two um, streams of Southern Baptist life, a Calvinistic stream and a non-Calvinistic stream. Denny Burke is with me, and Denny's got a blog. Is DennyBurke.com? That's correct. Uh, and it's really a fun blog and a very informative one. Dr. Denny Burke, Professor of New Testament and Greek here at the Criswell College. And you've talked about the five points, which is the tulip. And that's part of Calvinism. It's not the whole thing, although some people think it is. So we're talking total depravity. Right. Just give me a brief explanation of each yeah, of these. Um, yeah, for those who don't know what Calvinism is, it's a system of understanding the Bible's teaching about 
how God applies salvation to sinners, and it focuses on God's sovereign work in that process so that um, it, it holds, uh, there's an acrostic that sort of summarizes Calvinism. The acrostic is um, um, TULIP, or, or acronym, I guess, should, mm-hmm. I guess I should say. Uh, acronym is TULIP, and the T stands for total depravity, meaning that all human beings are radically depraved and sinners. We don't all live as sinfully as we could be, but we're all sinful to our core. And most believers have no problem with the T. Yeah, yeah, most uh, believers would would agree with that. And we can do nothing because of our sinful state to save ourselves, to earn our salvation. We're in need of a Savior. Okay, you. The uh, the U stands for for unconditional election, which teaches that God chose, that's what election means, He chose people from before the foundation of the world to come to faith in Jesus. The unconditional means is that his choosing, his election of those individuals is not based on any good works or anything that he sees in them. Not even um, is it based on what that, that he foresees that they're going to believe. Um, it's unconditional. It's not conditioned upon anything in the human being. It's conditioned only on God's uh, wise purposes and his love. Okay, now when Calvin and when the Reformers articulated this, they went through scriptures, and the weight of scripture to them was behind this. And for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, I mean, this is a big chapter for this, mm-hmm. isn't it, Denny? Because yeah, I'm looking Ephesians at verse 1, 3. Go ahead. Ephesians 1, 4 says, uh, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us. Um, to the adoption of sons. I think I'm mutilating the second part of the verse, but basically it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he made us accepted. It, it, in a sense, it's really all him yeah, in this passage. Un- un- that unconditional election means that God is choosing not based on any merit or any foreseen faith in the believer. God just does it out of his grace. Okay, now here's where people get into something, because you're talking about whether God foresaw that people were going to respond to him or not. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is where the the questions come up with people. Some people would say, well, he knew, he foreknew that I was going to respond to the gospel. And so, you know, that's how the election happens. Other people would say, no, you had nothing, you had no free will in the matter at all. This was all God drawing you to him. Am I articulating this correctly? Um, or you well, want to add to it, please? Yeah, well, yeah, there is a big difference between Calvinists and non-Calvinists over um, human free will, how to define that. Um, some people would hold to a position of libertarian free will, which means that um, uh, a person is totally free and there's no limitations on their, their will, um, so to speak. Um, they can choose to believe the gospel or not choose to believe it, and the reasons for that decision are internal to themselves. Um, Other people would see that human free will has been limited by a person's sinful nature. So um, a person will never choose, so a Calvinist would say a person would never choose to believe in Christ just of their own volition. The Holy Spirit has to come and change and transform a person's heart and actually effectually does bring a person's heart to faith. Um, and uh, whereas an, uh, a non-Calvinist would tend to say, well, um, that sounds coercive, and God is not in the business of coercing. Uh, a Calvinist wouldn't like that coercive language because a Calvinist would say that, well, really, God is just opening people's eyes. 
Okay, one of the big questions here is who did Christ die for? I think it really kind of comes down to that because certain verses, you know, John three sixteen, God so loved the world. Uh, who, what is the world? And I think people are saying, well, he died for all sinners. But then uh, others would say there's a church that he selected. Those are the people he died for. If he died for the whole world, then his death was ineffectual because some people have not actually been saved. Yeah, that's right. That's the L in the acronym TULIP. It stands for Limited Atonement. And the question is, is who did Christ die for, and did Christ really purchase anything when he died on the cross? Um, You know, was it just hypothetically people might be saved after he died on the cross, or did he actually pay a price when he died on the cross? And uh, Calvinists hold, uh, a full five-point Calvinist will hold that Christ's death was intended for the elect only. Um, when Christ laid down his life, like John 10 says, he, Jesus says the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He knows who his sheep are. His sheep hear his voice. He's dying for them. Um, so he doesn't die for everyone in the same way indiscriminately. Now, the gospel is held out to everyone. The gospel should be preached to everyone, but it's only going to work for the elect. Um, so that's sort of the way a Calvinist would say it. Non-Calvinists would say, no, Christ, you, they look at the world, those world passages, and they say, um, you know, God so loved the world, or his, First um, uh, John uh, 2, 1, which says that Christ died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. They look at those and they say, well, world just means everybody, and so he dies for everybody in the same way. And so that would be an unlimited atonement. So, um, so limited uh, atonement is the L. Of, that's a real point of, of dispute, though, because there are some people who, would, who are Calvinistic who don't hold to limited atonement. But if you listen to them on every other point, they still sound like Calvinists. Right. But they don't hold the limited atonement. So, uh, you know, the conference you referred to a while ago, um, you, you, did you mention the conference? I did, ago? I did. Yeah, a lot of the non-Calvinists who spoke are nevertheless very Calvinistic on all the other points, but they don't hold the limited atonement. They have a little trouble with the L. Well, this yeah. is, uh, this is I think, the concern is that Calvinism would preclude evangelism in some way and that it would damper or place some sort of a clamp on evangelism. But this study found that this was not exactly true, didn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it's not true. That doesn't hold up, I don't think, biblically or historically. Um, biblically, all that Calvinism does is mean that man preaches the gospel, but God is the one responsible for the results. You can't manipulate people into being saved. It's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit or it's not going to happen. That's what a Calvinist believes. Um, but historically, in Baptist, among Southern Baptist life, you know, Charles Spurgeon, I mean, great evangelist, mm-hmm. five-point Calvinist, the father of modern missions was is William Carey, and he's a Baptist, and he was a five-point Calvinist. So really, that's not Calvinism that's the problem when it comes to evangelism. It's something called hyper-Calvinism. And any time you hear someone claiming to be a Calvinist and, and saying that, well, you know, we're not going to offer the gospel to people freely, we're not going to invite people to believe the gospel, that's a person who is moved out of Calvinism, biblical Calvinism, into unbiblical hyper-Calvinism. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to open up the phones. We want to know if uh, you are a Calvinist, if you have a problem with Calvinism, or if you have a question for Dr. Denny Burke. The number is 800-881-9270. Dr. Denny Burke, New Testament professor at the Criswell College 
is with me, and we're talking about Calvinism. I might mention W.A. Criswell was a Calvinist. Al Moeller, who is president of uh, Southern Seminary uh, in Louisville, is a Calvinist, yet he founded the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism there. Uh, So in a sense, uh, we're talking about whether this movement or this argument is good for Christians and for Protestants to have. I do think it's instructive, and I think we should be talking about these things. We're going to continue to do that right after this. Stay with us again. The number 800-881-9270. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. And with me is Dr. Denny Burke. He's professor of New Testament and Greek at the Criswell College, and uh, he is a great guy to have as your professor. And if you're thinking about a college, try Criswell and... uh, you know, just give us a try. In fact, you can go to www.chriswell.edu to get more information. We've got a new term starting. Now, there are some stereotypes, Denny, that uh, sort of hinder the debate here. Uh, before we go to those stereotypes, or a couple of them, to let you explain them, we do have a couple of callers already on sure. the line for you. So let's go to Stephen in Fort Worth. Stephen, thanks for calling. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to point out two points. When you embrace uh, these truths, there's, there's a couple of things that happens to you in your faith. One, you understand how to evangelize properly, and that is you just preach. It's not up to you. It, it, it doesn't mean that if you don't understand the Scripture properly or if you don't understand uh, what a person is going through properly, it, it relieves all the pressure off you, and it just allows you to declare the faith that was given to you, uh, of, of course, by the Lord. But the second point is just, what it Let me interrupt you, Stephen, very quickly, because in a sense, of all preachers or, or, or all people who are evangelizing are vessels. But I do agree that it takes the pressure off, in a sense, because you know that it's not up to you. I mean, you're not going to save this person. Right, right. exactly. And then the other point is, is, is the grace. It's that once you understand that there's nothing that I did that came to the Lord as well, you understand your your state, and you understand the grace that he's granted to you is undeserved. That there's nothing at all that somebody either manipulated me into, or I myself made a decision to. But the grace, unmerited favor, was was demonstrated in 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 my redeemed life, or you know mm-hmm. uh, any other saint's life. Denny, yeah, well, you know, 
Spurgeon called Calvinism, he referred to these as the doctrines of grace. Essentially, that's what they are. It's how God, in his sovereignty, relates to us graciously. And um, we love, because not because we loved him, because he first loved us. You know, First John says, it was God who made the first move. So it, it, they really are doctrines of grace. I would make, I would say one thing, though, that, you know, in saying that, uh, as, you know, representing a more Calvinistic position, I, I wouldn't want to imply that the non-Calvinists in the Southern Baptist Convention are saying that salvation is something other than of grace. That's not the case. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember listening to a sermon by uh, our good friend, Dr. Paige Patterson. Mm-hmm. I think it was down at uh, New Orleans Seminary a few, several years ago, or just a few years ago. And uh, it, it, his, his sentence went pretty much just like this. He says, when it comes to evangelism, we preach the gospel, and we leave the results to God. Um, so I that's, in, in that. a sense, that's I a stereotype. would agree with that, and mm-hmm. uh, most people who hold the doctrine of grace would agree with that, even though um, that was coming from one of the uh, Southern Baptist non-Calvinists. So um, it, there's a great agreement among Southern Baptists, Calvinists, and non-Calvinists. I think enough agreement to continue to cooperate for the cause of evangelism and, and missions and theological education. So I just want to say that, you know, you know, when you say one side, sometimes people implies that the opposite must be the case for the other side and that's in in this case that's not true well that is what that's what's happening with some of these stereotypes that i want to get to i hope we have time but i want to also get to alan in alan alan you're on with danny burke hi thank y'all very much for having me go ahead hello go ahead well i wanted to i agree 100 percent. i want to say thank you to Stephen for what all he said and for what y'all just said too but my question is this Aren't we trying to break this down too hard? Is you just said it? We're supposed to preach the word and leave it up to God. Why are we trying to break this down? Doesn't it weaken our witness whenever we're trying to say, "Well, I believe in all this, but I also have a little bit of this too." So, good question. He haul. I mean, we leave it to God. Let's just what does the word say and leave it there. Danny, is this divisive to have this discussion, or is this a good thing? Well, doctrine is always going to be divisive where people don't dis- don't agree on what the Bible means, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, we can't say, when the Bible speaks to a subject, we can't say, it doesn't matter what it means, or um, we don't need to have an opinion about it. We assume that God speaks to us, He intends for us to understand it, and He intends for His revelation to be coherent. So... Um, Really, this is an argue about a debate about what does the Bible teach, and there's disagreement among Christians about what the Bible teaches on this po- on these points. So, um, I don't want to say that uh, you know I don't think the Southern Baptist Convention needs to split over this, uh, but at the same time, I do think that it's important for us to speak to one another, even those of us who disagree with one another, speak to one another in love, and try to come to a better understanding of what the Bible teaches. And we could probably, you know, all sides could be sharpened by the other side, but we want to come to a unity of the faith. We don't want to come to, uh, we don't want to act like these questions are inconsequential. They are consequential because it's about God's Word. Okay, well, uh, we don't have time to go through all these myths, but I think to dispel these myths is one way to promote unity. Now, one myth about non-Calvinists is they're more concerned about numbers than theology. Can you speak to that quickly, Denny? Uh, that's not true. Um, you know, I already mentioned Dr. Paige Patterson, president of Southwestern Seminary. 
Um, he gave a great message uh, too last uh, spring at a, a Baptist uh, Distinctives Conference at Union University and mentioned the need for a regenerate church membership, which is a Baptist distinctive, meaning that it's important that we maintain um, a membership in our churches that's made up of believers and that we practice church discipline and that we um, um, you know, do all the hard work of discipleship that, uh, frankly, a lot of churches don't do anymore where they dumb down the message or um, you know, make membership so meaningless that you have all these people who are on the rolls but very few people who are actual converts. And so, um, there, you know, I have that in common with many non-Baptists, and um, so it would be wrong to say that all, excuse me, I have that in common with many, many non-Calvinists. <laughs> all Baptists have that in common. Okay, Danny, real quickly, we already dealt with the idea that Calvinism is a threat to evangelism and sort of dispelled that. What about the idea Southern Baptist Calvinists are opposed to invitations? Yeah, what you'll hear, you know, some, what you'll hear is is Calvinists, resisting the idea of manipulating people to believe in Christ. And sometimes there are some evangelistic methods that are manipulative. Sometimes maybe you've been to a revival where, you know, the, the, the preacher at the front sort of coaxes you down the aisle. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and, and can be manipulative about it. But I think everybody's opposed to that, not just the Calvinists. So um, I think that's what you're seeing opposition to. Calvinists aren't opposed to invitations. Invitations are inviting people to believe in Christ. Um, and some people use altar calls. They'll call people down to the altar to make a, their decision public. Some people don't. Um, but every Baptist, every person who cares about the Great Commission has to believe in an invitation in the sense of inviting people to believe in Jesus and to repent of their sins. And not just every Baptist, every Christian. Every Christian, every person. Denny Burke has been my guest. Thank you so much, Denny. I appreciate it. Uh, this is a discussion that will continue. We had a great debate at the Southern Baptist Convention. You can go hear that debate by going to www.jerryjohnsonlive.com. A lot of good information. We will continue to discuss this, but the bottom line is Jesus loves you. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live a Christian Worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.